right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Crypto 101 Podcast. I'm your host, Bryce, as always, joined by my good old buddy across the world, or should I say across the country, uh, Brendan. How are you doing, man? You, are you staying drier than I am over here in San Diego? We're like in the middle of uh, a pretty crazy rainy season. I mean, Bryce, ironically, the roles have reversed and I'm in the dry <laughs> season. I'm dry. And uh, no, things are doing good over here, though. As you can see, a new backdrop for all the YouTube yeah. watchers. But I just completed a move. And man, what I guess a breath of fresh air and relief it is to be in the new space. But man, we're back and we're better than ever. We got a really awesome guest on today with us. And I'm pretty stoked for it, Bryce. Oh man, I am very excited for this. We are joined by Craig Sellers, who is the co-founder and CEO of Self. Um, and he's got an extensive background. I would say one of the, the crypto legends, the OGs. He was on the uh, the founding team of Tether and Bitfinex. And we're going to dive into everything about uh, you know Craig and what he's building itself. So Craig, thank you for joining. And uh, how are you doing? Doing fantastic. Uh, Brendan Bryce, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, I, I, nice to meet you both. Uh, and love to talk about uh, the current project, past projects, and where the future leads. Hey guys, TiVo here with a quick ad break to tell you that today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some of the much-needed clarity in the finance world, thus helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Some of the things I've learned from these guys include planning for my tax bills, managing finances with your partner, making a balanced budget, saving on travel, planning for some retirement, and boosting my credit score. If these things sound interesting to you, make sure that you listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. So amongst the hustle bustle of our busy lives, my wife and I are always on the lookout for ways to streamline our daily routines without compromising on the quality of our meals. And that's where Factor comes into play, perfectly aligning with our desire to save time amidst our hectic work schedule. Now, Factor's array of delicious, ready-to-eat meals, expertly prepared by chefs and approved by dietitians, simplifies eating well every single day. And with over 35 weekly options catering to various dietary preferences like keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, you know, Factor ensures we're well-equipped for the week ahead. And the convenience of having nutrition-packed meals and over 55 add-ons delivered directly to our door transforms weekly meal planning into a delightful experience. And, and guys, real quick, Factor has a two-minute meal as well, many of them. And it offers us the luxury of enjoying restaurant-quality food in the comfort of our own home, ready to heat and eat at our convenience. The broad selection extends beyond meals to include snacks, smoothies, and everything else, right? Covering all of our little hankerings and cravings throughout the day. Now look, the service's cost-effectiveness when compared to takeout, paired with the assurance of nutritious and delicious options, is what makes Factor a no-brainer for me and my wife. Um, and it should be a no-brainer for you, too. Now, what truly sets Factor apart is its flexibility, meaning the option to choose between 16 to 18 meals per week, along with the ability to pause or reschedule deliveries, ensuring that the service adapts to our ever-changing schedules and not the other way around. We're in charge, right? The no prep, the no mess meals, uh, guys, it's just been a game changer for us. 
and now we're able to focus on what matters most, building our relationship together without the hassle of meal prep and cleanup. So if you're ready to embrace a week filled with effortless, feel-good meals, then visit factormeals.com slash crypto10150 and use the code crypto10150 for an incredible 50% off your first order. Don't miss out on this opportunity to elevate your meal time with Factor's fast, upscale, and easy dining solutions. Again, that's crypto10150. That's the code at factormeals.com slash crypto10150 and claim your 50% off discount today. I love it. I love it. Let's just dive straight in. Um, you know, you like I said, you've been in crypto, I mean, probably before, I mean, before the word even crypto people were calling it, it was probably just called Bitcoin back then. Yes, um, tell us about, is that right? Yeah. No, it, was, it was late 2010 that I read the first, uh, the, the Bitcoin white paper for the first time. Uh, as a computer scientist, my mind exploded and thought, oh my God, here's a machine that once turned on, you can never turn off and it eats money. Mm. Therefore, it will one day eat all of the money. And so I realized I needed to dive in professionally uh, and, and provide some value to the ecosystem. Uh, I found uh, the, 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 the MasterCoin project in, uh, in late 2013 uh, and joined them as their CTO uh, to build the very first wallets. It was the very first smart contract that was deployed on the Bitcoin blockchain, like a token vending machine, uh, the first ICO before they were called ICOs. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And realized uh, pretty pretty early on, uh, if you guys remember the Mt. Gox exchange and all the problems it had back in the day, uh, the, the, the U.S. government had seized one of their bank accounts. Uh, and so people could not withdraw their dollars anymore off the exchange. So they were buying up all the Bitcoins on Mt. Gox to get their value off, which caused the price of Bitcoin to go up 5x from like, you know, 200 bucks to 1100 bucks. And I'm sitting here working on this protocol that allows for token generation. And I thought, well, if I could just withdraw my dollar balance out of Mt. Gox into my Bitcoin wallet... They wouldn't need a bank at all. It would solve that problem. And we created Tether out of that whole concept. Wow. That's crazy. Um, it, you know, it, it's crazy because also Mt. Gox is still kind of going through their, uh, yeah. their bankruptcy process today. I mean, all those mm -hmm. people who lost Bitcoin still haven't gotten it back. The lawyers that's have gotten crazy. plenty, though. Yeah. The law oh, yeah. Always. <laughs> and the same thing that's going on in the FDX thing. I, I, these lawyers are making hundreds of millions of dollars and, and all of us are just along for the ride. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's pretty crazy. And so, so you founded, you know, uh, you know, back in those early days, you, you found that there was a really cool application um, for, for really tokenizing dollars among many other things. Um, and again, it's funny because the theme is like, you know, you were in crypto before it's called crypto. You were in uh, you know, stable coins before they were called stable coins and yep. NFTs before they were even called NFTs. What, yep. what were you doing in, in that world as well? So uh, while I was at Tether in 2015, we met an entrepreneur named Eric Poulier in Santa Monica, California, and he owned a bar uh, and he, he was talking about tokenizing real world things. We tokenized the dollar. Mm. Could you tokenize other things? He wanted to have an icon of a beer on your phone that you could swipe up to the bartender, like a cold beer icon and get a real beer in exchange. Like, yeah, we can totally tokenize beer bottles, right? Uh, his genius said, well, how about if you don't redeem that beer bottle, that cold beer in a day or two, could it become warm in your wallet where you have to actually pay an extra dollar to get a cold beer in exchange? And that's when I looked at Reeve Collins, the CEO of Tether at the time, and said, Reeve, I quit. Um, I'm going to go build this with Eric because what he's describing is a uniquely identifiable token. Not, before it was called non-fungible, we called them UITs. Uh, or uh, autonomous digital mm. objects where they could actually change state and change value and be different from one another. So you could actually have a beer that could be either cold or warm. 
And that was the first concept of NFTs. We built a platform called Vatomic Systems. Uh, it's now vatom.com. Uh, it was the first uh, N- NFT platform deployed. Yeah, I, I remember uh, learning about Block V. Um, yep. I saw one of those presentations way, way long ago at one of the conferences and uh, very crazy, very cool stuff. Well, we learned a, value, a really valuable lesson there is that you, you the identity, you the person, you're actually the most valuable NFT in the world. You are obviously non-fungible and you're unique. And what we realized, again, with lessons from Bitfinex and Tether, was that there would be regulatory concerns about uh, credentialing. Are you able to transact with a third party? And if so, how do you, how do you guarantee the regulators will approve that? How do you also preserve privacy to make sure that your user information isn't being exposed between third parties unnecessarily? So we began yeah. thinking about how do you actually have non-transferable, non-fungible attributes or tokens about yourself? We built some early prototypes of what a decentralized identity platform protocol might look like. And it's evolved into what's hosted now at keychain.org, or the, uh, it's called MDIP, Multi-Dimensional Identity Protocol. And it's the basis upon which we're building itself to build the interfaces uh, so that it's not, you know, nerds in closets slipping dip switches and doing command line things. Uh, it's actually beautiful UIs to sign in with yourself uh, on websites where identity assets have value. Yeah, and, and what's crazy is I've seen just recently, it was going around Twitter, um, that there's now AI that's plugged into these dark web neural networks mm-hmm. that are generating fake IDs, yep. um, giving people sort of fake IDs that look so real that it's passing you know, all sorts of KYC, AML stuff. It's a huge problem because you know, we didn't think about AI compounding this issue of identity. Mm-hmm. And so you know, you're building a solution, um, and I'm curious... Is WorldCoin like a competitor? Is what they're doing like similar? Are they trying to do something here um, so with identity? WorldCoin is trying to be uh, like a global standard for identity. Uh, the, the vast difference between what they're trying to accomplish and what we're trying to accomplish, they want to be the holders or, or the, the identifier of your identity. They want to have that biometric information. They want to scan your eyeball and prove who you are, but they maintain the database. We see that as a gigantic honeypot for hackers. Right? Yeah. Gonna, right? We don't want that at all. Self, the company, has no access to the user's information. It's encrypted. It's stored in IPFS or on blockchains where only the user gets to decide who gets to see that information. We as a company mm-hmm. don't care who you are. We don't want to see your information, none whatsoever. So the big difference in, in their business model and ours, with a similar concept, honestly, which is trying to provide a common standard for identity, but ours, I believe, is, is, is the better option where you, in fact, are in control. You are the self-sovereign owner of your identity. Yeah, and Craig, before we get you know, too deep in the self, I've got to ask, you know, kind of rewinding things for a bit here, you know, what was it like seeing the industry evolve? I mean, you were there pretty much from the beginning and now seeing it become what it is today. Like, has anything caught you by surprise or did everything kind of go according to plan? <laughs> What caught me by surprise was the number of scammers that came into the marketplace uh, mm, and actually yeah. gave crypto a bad name, gave Bitcoin a bad name when it didn't have one beforehand. Uh, all the things that you couldn't do in Wall Street because they were illegal um, suddenly were able to be done again on these open decentralized marketplaces because there were no regulations and laws around them. Uh, and the folks that knew how to manipulate those markets came in and did so. Uh, stole lots of money. There was a lot of fraud. Uh, and that was the biggest surprise to me. It was that we came in, the, some of the earlier folks that came in, we weren't looking to make it rich on these things. We were looking to change the world for self-sovereign uh, asset ownership and creation, uh, assets that can't be seized. Again, machines that you can't turn off that tell a true ledger of what everyone claims to own being accurate. 
Like, we see these things as, as, as world-changing events, uh, not as money-making machines. They happen to be money-making machines, and they drew a, bra- a, a bad crowd, much more so than I ever mm. expected. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more with you there, Craig. It's, uh, I mean, what you're doing over itself is you're really bridging the gap between Web 2 identity and Web 3 identity, right? And so I'd love to hear you just kind of walk us through and explain the key differences and like why we're seeing this kind of shift start to happen right now as opposed to maybe earlier or even later. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to date myself a tad bit by using America Online uh, as an analogy. Mm-hmm. Um, but America AOL. On- yeah, AOL, right? AOL was uh, a beautiful ecosystem of like uh, online activities, forums, message boards, stores, etc. What they created, though, was, was in essence a walled garden. You had to go to America Online to do all of those things. They realized too late that they were actually the on-ramp to something else, which was the open, broader internet that was, of course, gaining momentum all along the way. What I've seen in identity is we have a whole bunch of places that are trying to be walled gardens for identity. Um, I don't want to like single them out, but places like Facebook, uh, Instagram, TikTok, Microsoft, they are islands of identity information that are you know, harvesting information about you and monetizing it on your behalf where you have no upside whatsoever in that information. It's actually your data. You should own that data. That's, it's it's, it's uh, intellectual property that you're creating about yourself that you should own and then be able to delegate yourself. What we never had and, and until what we're working on here is that open standard, that HTTP of identity, the internet of identity in essence. All the other companies are creating islands of identity. We want to create hmm. the globe. And so is it fair to say like you guys are building a protocol? Um, yes. I'm trying to, you know, is that true? Yes. At the, at the very base lever, uh, level is that keychain.org MDIP open source protocol and specification. That is the core of everything, which we don't want to own. That's going to be community organized, community run, uh, and, and contributed to by the developer community at, at large. We don't want control over that at all. We want it to be the best open source, open standard that can Mm. exist to ensure interoperability. There will be islands of identity, but you must have boats that go between those islands of identity, and that's an open standard. I think it's 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 so fascinating with with DAOs and with these sort of decentralized uh, structures and stuff. Um, Is there a token that that helps govern it, or how do you kind of you know? get everybody on the same page to, to, you know, get a project going in the direction that it should be. Yeah, there's absolutely no token besides you. You are the token. You are the thing of value uh, on these Hmm. networks. If you record your identity on a blockchain, you're already spending a token. If you record it on Bitcoin, you're spending a Bitcoin. If you uh, record it on Ethereum, you're spending Ether. There is no point in adding an extra level of friction to that and say, oh, Hmm. you, but you also must need this extra token on top. Okay, that will actually preclude users from joining the network because it's an unnecessary cost. Others have introduced tokens, and it will be their death knell. <laughs> they, they will not succeed because they're adding that extra level of friction. Do you think that tokens as a overall sort of governing model, um, do you think that that's like a fallacy, like it's just a pipe dream, or do you think like some models actually might work? Some models might actually work, and I think I believe will work. Um, I think what, what's beautiful about blockchains is they're all experiments. Every single one of these things is an experiment in governance, okay? Mm. Tokenization can be your vote. It can be your representation on a blockchain. You can stake those things and not transfer them. The difficulty comes in where those tokens begin providing uh, additional value, where they cross the line into could they be a security, in which case they can't actually be traded freely. 
So there's a bunch of questions that have not yet been resolved on what is voting worth, for example, on a blockchain, if everyone can see your vote, which means you can have the, uh, the, your vote purchased, for example, which you can't allow in a voting system. So there, there are things that we are still developing today that will leverage all of this decentralized cryptography to give us these beautiful solutions in the future. I certainly believe that decentralized governance, tokenization of governance is, is, is where we're going. I believe every scarce asset in the world will be tokenized and will exist on a blockchain. Mm -hmm. Now, walk us through, like, you know, if, if we're to use um, self, um, is this something that we connect to our Ethereum wallet through MetaMask or, you know, is it is it on Solana? Like, you know, I think a lot of our listeners, um, you know, they're, they're actively, you know, trading on these platforms. Um, you know, what's the consumer experience kind of look like with this self uh, platform? Well, from a protocol perspective, it doesn't care which blockchain you're talking to. You can talk to Bitcoin, mm. you can talk to Ethereum, EVM-based chains, Solana. You can Anyone who wants to build compatibility, they can. It's like building a web browser. They're all going to talk HTML, right? Self as a company is providing some elegant interfaces for that, like an iOS app, an Android app, a browser extension, uh, very similar to MetaMask. And the open source side will be actually adding in compatibility to those third-party wallets to say, here's how you talk. MDIP. Here's how you represent your identity following this open standard protocol. So we'll provide beautiful interfaces on the self side, an explorer, a marketplace, etc. But the protocol itself is completely agnostic. If you want to record things, you know, on Google Drive, you're welcome to. On the Bitcoin mm. blockchain, you're welcome to. IPFS, uh, private on your phone and never leaving your phone, you can be completely anonymous. The protocol doesn't care. And, and this is super important, like, to tackle because, um, you know, I, I'm sure you could list off all of the data breaches off the top of my head, like Experian was huge, um, Target, you know, there was a bunch, you know, so, so walk us through like why this is so important and why that could never happen. Basically, I want to know what like assurances there are around privacy and security of our data. And also along that lines, like what of our data is being, you know, shared out there um, mm -hmm. on, on the self platform? Like how do you guys choose which data of ours to share? Mm -hmm. Well, it's, well we, we don't choose anything whatsoever. We're kind of like the Google indexing all of the web pages in the world. We're showing mm -hmm. the map of the interconnections between identities, but we can't see who they are or anything about them. We just know that they are connected because they're telling the world they're connected. They're saying, you know, I trust my bank or my bank trusts my insurance company, right? Those, those are the, the interconnected meshes that we have in reality have never been mapped digitally before. That's the goal here. The difference uh, in identity warehouses that exist today is they are monolithic databases filled with information that get larger and larger over time, which if you breach them, you have all of the information. You know, every credit card number of a target customer, right? Every social security number of a credit agency. All of a sudden, it's all exposed. When you treat every identity as its own data store, as its own, we call it a digital genome, actually, with atoms and molecules, atoms being like uh, your first name, your last name, your uh, molecules being your driver's license, mm. attestations and claims about yourself, verifications uh, being, being elements of that digital genome, it's fully encrypted by you and by your passwords, which means if you wanted to, to break into the database of identities, you'd have to break into every single one of them individually after you found them. So it makes, the, it makes the, the problem so much harder for someone to try and get any information about anyone because they have to go after everyone individually as opposed to going after a, a, a one single database that holds everybody's information. Like 23andMe, for instance. Uh, I, I just saw its valuation, you know, when it IPO'd was, you know, 
several billion, and, and now it's worth um, you know a fraction of what it was. And so somebody could kind of just come acquire that company for whatever a billion bucks and have access to everybody's data that ever used that. Yeah. Um, something like the that would be genome. impossible with your system, right? Uh, it would be impossible with the system because every single every single genome, every single piece of data about you is encrypted by you. So they would have a whole bunch of gobbledygook mm. random text that is entirely useless to them unless they wanted to brute force every single identity out there and then uh, subsequently every single piece of information about them individually. So it's like, it's like double I, encrypted. I see. And so when, when we think about self um, and you, know, you, you co-founded it, is there what you, like, would you call it a business model? Um, is there like any sort of profit anywhere in this or is this just out of the goodness of your heart you're saying like this is a technology we're open sourcing it nobody's making money and we just think it's going to make the world a better place so very similar to tether when tether was created um the business model was not to take transaction fees from users uh it was originally to actually have like uh exchange costs when you bought tethers or redeemed tethers there was a small transaction fee there uh, to enter and exit the system to cover the base operations of the business the big business model was if Tether got large enough and had a large enough reserve, it would generate interest income. And that would mm. be the profit model for the business. It would take time to get to that size. But once it did, it would generate a healthy profit, which it does. Uh, Self is doing something very similar. We're not trying to, to nickel and dime individual transactions between users, but we facilitate those connections. When you, for example, have valuable information about yourself, your, your, let's say your bank balance or your heart rate uh, that someone else might find valuable, they're going to offer you money for that information. They're going to say, you know, Bryce, I've got uh, $2 a month to spend on your minute-by-minute uh, -minute heart rate. Are you willing to share that information with me? Well, if you say yes, you're going to get part of that $2, the majority of it. Uh, let's say that Fitbit, as a, as a hypothetical example, since they're the one recording those things and actually making the attestation that it's true, they'll also get a portion of that $2. And self, because we facilitated the connection, we'll get a small piece as well. So we're only tagging along to help make sure connections are made and we monetize it in that basis. So again, the larger the network gets, the better self does. So let's fast forward like 10 years down the road. Do you think that we could see a drop in identity crime if this kind of tech is implemented? And like, if so, like which identity crimes would be like the first ones to go, like the easiest ones to get rid of if this kind of tech is implemented on like a normal basis in the future? Well, when you talked about AI earlier, creating a whole bunch of like deep fake personalities and things, we've been talking mm -hmm. to influencers uh, that want to have some way of saying this content that I create is mine. And in essence, you know, with cryptography on a blockchain, when you, when you send a Bitcoin from your address to someone else, you're signing a transaction. That transaction is, the blockchain sees that signature and says, yes, you know, Brendan, you've got this amount of Bitcoin and it's okay for you to transfer this somewhere else. You can sign digital content in the same way. So the prediction here is in 10 years, every piece of content that is produced will have an accompanying digital signature, which will trace mm -hmm. back to that decentralized identity of the creator of that value, which means no one can fake being you. So if your social security is, is, number is stolen, no one can use it because they can't sign as you when it's needed. So somebody could still like use all of our stuff, create a deep fake, but it wouldn't have that digital signature attached. So that would mean, okay, well, you know, clearly that's not me. It doesn't have my signature. Exactly. Because it's not signed, it's somebody else. It'd be almost like handing someone your phone and it having face ID and being like, good luck getting in. It knows <laughs> that that's not you. So they can't really do anything with the information at like a high level. 
Exactly. Yeah. Wow. And this is so necessary. I mean, I think about um, some of these legal cases that are going on that I see and, you know, and, and Trump's talking about like, oh, that wasn't me. That was a deep fake. And, and people are literally just, you know, uh, creating these things. And, you know, people are, you know, pledging these, you know, as evidence in court. And then it's actually getting thrown out because they're realizing it's <laughs> deep fake. So this is a huge issue. Um, it's super scary. And I'm glad that there's smart people uh, like you and your team trying to fix all this. Um, but I do have a question surrounding just like, you know, GDPR and like I'm over in California. So there's like, you know, CCPA and all sorts of different um, like, you, you know, I guess regulations and rules around um, how, you know, I guess platforms, I guess you're, you guys are protocol, so it might not even apply to you. But do you guys think about those sort of regulations when you're building? And, and if so, how do you factor them in? We do. Uh, one of the business decisions we had uh, to not have visibility or access to the user's information is to actually avoid that regulatory concern because we can't act upon it. We can't act upon the data because we don't have access to it ourselves. Uh, we believe very strongly in the right to be forgotten, the right to be anonymous. Um, I personally believe that freedom is binary. You are either free or you are a slave on some level. If you don't have self-sovereign control over that data, about your data, it's in the hands of someone else. And the protocol is designed at its base level to ensure that you start off anonymous and private. You can become pseudonymous and less private as you choose. And if you record mm. data to a blockchain, you can never erase that, but you can also abandon it and create a brand new identity somewhere else and be somewhere else you know, the next day. As long as the I mean, protocol supports that, you have the ultimate amount of freedom, but the privacy are all choices that the user makes themselves. Yeah, I mean, talking about things that are, that are intamperable, I mean, do you ever see blockchains eventually being used by governments, you know, as a form of security? I mean, it sounds like this would be something that's great for fighting even things like voting fraud, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like blockchains are the kryptonite to governments in a sense. <laughs> they, they don't want us to, to have all this security and, and, and verifiability. I don't know. Maybe they do. There's, there's, there's an enlightenment aspect to that. I think uh, when, when governments recognize the, the true value that these things provide both to themselves and to their citizenry, uh, they will come along to understand these are benefits that everyone should have had from, for all time. They couldn't have been done before. There are innovations in blockchains that simply didn't exist 12 years ago. Uh, it's, it created a whole new paradigm. Those things are still like rippling through the world of why those things are actually advantages to people. Yes, I believe governments will be using blockchains for everything they need to be immutable. Uh, property registries, who owns what at the end of the day. There should be more privacy controls on them today. I mean, right now, everyone knows what everyone else is worth on Bitcoin. There should be uh, privacy elements added to that over time. And I believe Bitcoin will inherit the, 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 the more perfect versions of those as they're demonstrated. I think those are all advantages that we get. I think the self-sovereign identity, uh, the self-sovereign idea of both value and identity are going to be the thing that, that sort of propels humanity in, into its next epoch. Of, of success, because we're going to be secure in our assets, secure in our ability to transact with one another, uh, and we'll be using blockchains as that foundation. Yeah, I mean, no, I love it. Do you think that this gives too much like freedom and independency to the average person? It, it's hard to say if it gives too much or too less, because it gives exactly what it does, and you can't change it. So it's more yeah. like a new law of physics. It's we have to live with it and understand how it works and deal with the consequences. Because again, once you turn a blockchain on and the majority accepts those rules, you can't turn it off. And those rules are fixed. I mean, you can fork them off and maybe a different version goes somewhere else. Uh, but as long as the rules benefit that network, it's going to perpetuate on basically forever. So it's a new law of physics. Is it too much power? I can't say, but we have it now.
<laughs> Hopefully we use it responsibly. Yeah. The Pandora's box has been opened. <laughs> exactly. Stay tuned to find out next week's episode. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. It's a great cliffhanger. No, I'm curious, um, you know, from a, you know, from a business development standpoint, like wh- what is your kind of strategy when you think about gaining more adoption or, or you go after the developers to, to get it integrated? Or are you going after consumers? How do you think about that? So uh, we have a, a multi-phase approach. We're starting with developers, right? The folks who want to start tinkering with things and help make it better. Uh, users and businesses come along next, uh, and we, we bifurcated that into the Web3 world versus like the Web2 world. Folks that understand cryptography and decentralization, they get this almost immediately. They, they'll, they'll run a node happily and protect their private keys successfully. On the Web2 side, they want the benefits and advantages, and they see that this is where the world is going, but they're not ready to dive in you know, full bore. So they have to have interfaces that they're familiar with, you know, SDKs and APIs that they, that they work with today that mimic their current business processes. So we're trying to accommodate both sides at the same time because we're all going to the same place. I mean, are there any other technologies or events or ideas that you're watching out for for the rest of this year? I mean, it feels like new industries in crypto are always popping up. And, you know, you're one of the founding fathers when we talk about stable coins and NFTs and now everything around the whole identification side of, of blockchain tech. So, like, what else is on your radar and has really kind of piqued your attention here recently? Well, again, every identity project out there is an experiment. Just like there are 10,000-something blockchains out there, each one's an attempt at governance, um, there are going to be as at least as many identity projects. I think there are 157 DID projects in the W3C spec right now alone. Uh, each one of those is going to have something that we learn from. There will be plenty of failures. Uh, and as long as you're patient and you, uh, you build something that can sustain itself over the time being, you will inherit those successes uh, and hopefully avoid the pitfalls. I love it. And, Couldn't agree more with you there. Yeah, and, and Craig, before we kind of you know switch gears, um, you know, kind of onto your thoughts about just the market, how things have been developing, your your thoughts on the future. Um, I want to I want to ask you know, is there anything that we forgot to ask you about self? Anything that you know you'd like to address, or anything uh, that's just kind of not addressed yet? <laughs> no, I think I think we actually covered most of the things. It's important to understand that we have a core premise of privacy, a core premise of self-sovereignty of your data. We believe firmly that you should own your data and no one else. You can share it with whomever you want. That's up to you entirely, your call. Uh, That's not the case that we have today. Someone else owns your data. Someone else is making money by selling it to others. Uh, You have certain upsides. There are benefits to that. Like you get ads for things that you might care about, for example. Uh, but But you're sacrificing a huge amount of privacy. And it's unnecessary. We believe strongly that you can get those benefits without having to give up any of the privacy. Yeah, the, the classic, um, you know, if you're using a, a platform for free, um, oftentimes you are the product, right? You know, they're selling all your data and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Craig, be, because you're a, a crypto OG, I, I just got to ask uh, about the having Your thoughts around it, um, obviously it's coming up in April. People are going to start talking about it a lot. Are there any patterns that you think are like true? Do you think it's self-fulfilling prophecy? Like, what do you think about all this stuff since you've been through already three halvings? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, every four years, uh, the number of Bitcoins per block gets cut in half. That's absolutely true. Um, what we've seen over time is that the hash rate has been increasing exponentially since the very beginning. There's no reason for that to, to plateau anytime soon. Um, the market reacts the way markets do. There's a supply and demand component to this. How much does it cost to produce Bitcoins? Is it worth turning on the miners at the time to do so? I've noticed from early, early on a fractal pattern where Bitcoin's price kind of goes up and kind of dips and then spikes up 
and then kind of dips and then spikes up again. And if you zoom out, those spikes all kind of look the same. Well, that can't go on forever, obviously, um, but it can, in fact, plateau. And I believe that until it does, we'll see that same pattern recurring over and over and over again. Yeah. And people have been saying that this time, again, the most dangerous words in markets are this time is different. Um, But I have been hearing this quite a bit because they say in the past 15 years, there's never been an ETF. And we just had this ETF launch. Do you think that comes to bear? I mean, obviously, we've seen lots of inflows, but equally just as much as outflows, uh, and even more so, right, from Grayscale. So what are your thoughts around the ETF? I think the ETF is a valuable innovation. I, I was actually surprised it took so long to happen uh, and was yeah. quite a bit frustrated that it took as long as it did uh, because a lot of those questions to be answered could have been answered five years ago. Um, but I think the regulators were, were being cautious, and I think responsibly so. Uh, there is the possibility of, of overall market disruption if everyone starts piling into a single asset, right? So there, there, there are gatekeepers for a reason, and there are uh, market, uh, market regulators dipping their toes into things and being cautious because they're, they're, they're mandated to do so. They're, they're, they must be responsible as custodians of an overall, uh, an overall economy. So you have to respect that that's, that's where they're coming from. At the same time, it does open up opportunities to the average investor they couldn't have themselves. Not everyone wants to hold their own custody of their cryptocurrency assets, their bitcoins. They don't, they, they don't want to do so. I believe very strongly that they should, but there's an education component to that. I'd rather them be able to do so securely than tell them to do so insecurely. Mm-hmm. I love it. Um, you know, when you think about you know, Bitcoin, that's been there for a long time. Ethereum, um, you know, everybody kind of thinks is the number two, right? I mean, it's number two by market cap. It really was um, the thing that caused the whole ICO bubble. Um, do you have a strong opinion on, you know, is Ethereum doing things the right way or, or is there maybe a, a different, better way to have smart contract, you know, fully Turing complete um, platforms? So I have a lot of personal opinions on these that I try not to share too much broadly because... Uh, well, that's why you're here, for your personal opinions. <laughs> I'm personally a fan of the innovation of proof of work as a consensus algorithm uh, because it's completely okay. fair and does not lead to cartelization or censorship mm. uh, by default. I believe the proof of stake, in fact, does lead in that direction unavoidably. Uh, you will always have uh, people working within a jurisdiction where they have to follow those rules. Okay, That's a legal reality. If a majority of those stakers in a proof-of-stake system do so, they will then have the legal requirement to censor transactions that their jurisdiction does not want. Okay? That is antithetical to the original purpose of a blockchain, which is permissionless transfer of value between individuals uh, without requiring a third party. If that third party can censor your information, it is not a truly decentralized system. Uh, so I do think they made a mistake in that, trans- in that transition. Um, it does, in fact, use vastly uh, about less of power. Uh, to do so. It does provide some scaling uh, enhancements that are much more difficult to accomplish in proof of work. Uh, I think these are all lessons to learn. We're only, what, 13 something, uh, 14 years into the blockchain experiment in the first place. We've got thousands of years to get this thing right. <laughs> uh, one, one of the things that I, you know, I, I think about when it comes to proof of work is like, you know, this town ain't big enough for the both of us. And everybody's like, you know, there could only be one proof of work chain because you know, they'll turn their hashing power to, to 51% attack anything else. Um, so, so is there enough room for multiple proof of work chains? Like, is that feasible? Absolutely. I mean, look, look at Litecoin, look at Dogecoin, look at Feathercoin, for example. These are all Bitcoin derivatives. 
Um, mm. They learned lots of lessons about how to uh, recuperate from 51% style attacks, reorganizations, you know, sudden drops in hash power and difficulty adjustments, et cetera. But those are perfectly functioning blockchains, some more secure than others, um, but they do their job and they do their job well. There is no reason why they shouldn't actually coexist. Bitcoin, as beautiful as it is, is slow comparatively to, to other chains um, and can be costly if, if the network gets clogged. Why not sprinkle some of those transactions if you're using them for metadata storage onto the smaller, cheaper chains? And there can be obviously an infinite number of those as long as they're kept secure. Now, I think, I think there's a, a, huge, a huge opportunity for anyone who wants to fire a proof of work chain so long as you realize you're, the, uh, uh, you're in charge of that community forever. So don't turn on a blockchain that you're not willing to, 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 to take care of until you're gone. Mm-hmm. Do you think that we're eventually going to see some sort of new and improved consensus model? I mean, like you said, proof of work originally came out nearly 15 years ago now. Then there was proof of well, stake. Well, that was a, lo- a lot longer than that. Like, proof of work was a technology that was invented like in the 90s and then Bitcoin adopted it. That's correct. That's correct. Now, I think that there will be innovations in consensus algorithms. Proof of work is sort of genius in that you're basically searching for a random number. I mean, it's as, basically as simple as you can possibly get. Check that the ledger is accurate, add a random number, does it work, you win, right? Yeah. It, it does its job, it does its job well. Are there other innovations there that could, that could potentially you know, take up less power? I'd love to see like a folding at home where you're folding proteins, or you're trying to solve mm-hmm. the next prime number, like mm-hmm. actually finding productive uses that everyone can easily prove and say, oh, that's good work. And now because you've done the work, you get the block reward, for example. So I think there are other opportunities for consensus algorithms that will that do that those opportunities do exist. We haven't seen them yet. I look forward to them. Yeah, I saw um, somebody. I think it was a it was one of these big Bitcoin miners back during like the COVID craze, and he he, he was talking about folding at home about how he's going to try and you know crunch the uh, the numbers around like the variations of this uh, COVID. You know, think could you actually explain what folding at home really means and, and how somebody could do it? And yeah. we're not referencing laundry here. <laughs> yeah, sure. So uh, proteins are very, very complex molecules that comprise of a lot of uh, like uh, a lot of atoms, carbon atoms, for example, and they form these extremely intricate shapes. Well, it takes a lot of effort to figure out how they combine with one another, how they produce enzymes. And it's like almost, it's not infinite, but there's a huge number of combinations. It takes a a large amount of computing power to figure out what are all the combinations of these proteins. So what Folding at Home did, it was actually uh, similar to what they did with SETI at Home, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Mm. They were listening to all the radio waves and saying, hey, can we use a million computers around the world to make this job easier? Well, Folding at Home did the same thing. They said, well, here's some proteins, go fold them. And Mm. once you folded them, it's obvious that it worked. It's not obvious until you do it. Like it's like a, a, the same way with a, with a one-way hash function with SHA-256 and mining. Anyone can prove that you hashed a thing correctly, but you can't take the hash and figure out what was hashed originally uh, without brute forcing everything. That's the folding at home concept. It's, it's distribute this, this, this massive computer problem to as many computers as possible. That's what mining is doing at the same time. Who has the right uh, random number to fulfill the block reward requirements? That, that the distributed compute concept can be applied to any computational problem. We just haven't applied it yet. I mean, imagine, for example, you have a GPU in your laptop right now, all right? Uh, ChatGPT, OpenAI, is spending hundreds of millions of dollars on data centers filled with GPUs to train LLM models. Why don't we have an open source version where your GPU can be added 
uh, to a large uh, decentralized network of GPUs to help actually create and train LLM models at scale. Hmm. Once you've trained them, you could then use that as proof that you've accomplished work. And you could use that as part of your consensus algorithm for an AI network that contains value. Yeah, I, I actually, you know, Brandon and I were just talking about this the other day. There's a really cool platform called Render Network, and I don't yep. think they're doing it for what you're talking about, but they are amassing like a bunch of these distributed GPUs. Yes. People are contributing it. That, that could be a really cool play. Um, I'm curious if, if there's any other ecosystems or like, you know, obviously nothing that we talk about is investment advice or financial advice, but, you know, for instance, Render Network, that's a, a really cool ecosystem that's kind of applicable here. Are there any other like standout ecosystems that you see that are, are really just, you know, warranted for people to, hey, go check it out, go join the Discord, uh, anything that you think is cool? Nothing that pops to mind. I mean, there's a ton of innovations out there. I think the critical point is look at how they're dealing with their community. Look at what they're promising. Um, if they're mm -hmm. promising, you know, huge returns and value of those things, run away as fast as you can. If they're demonstrating that they're going to provide value to individuals and organizations, uh, and they can demonstrate with it with a with a, a prototype or a reference implementation that it actually does work, keep your eyes on them because those things are the ones that, that can go viral very quickly uh, and provide benefit to a larger audience. Love it. Now, before we let you go, Craig, um, there's a lot of crypto entrepreneurs that, that watch the show, uh, people who are trying to get their foot in the door or build businesses in this space. Um, as a you know, serial, serial entrepreneur in the space, what would be uh, some, some good advice or just some words of wisdom? I think the best advice I can offer besides always be innovative, okay, and be willing to push the envelope, it's provide value before you ask for value. If there's a project that you mm. think is worthwhile, Contribute to that project. Don't ask for anything in return. Become valuable to that community, and that community will then provide you value. I like that. Brendan, what do you think about that? That's a pretty good word of wisdom right there. Yeah, I love it, especially the innovative part, because so often we see people come up and they say, hey, Bryce, I'm going to build a layer one that does 11,000 TPS instead of 10,000 TPS. And then the <laughs> next guy comes along and says, hey, Bryce, I'm going to build one that does 12,000 TPS. And then it's yeah. just this ever-growing cycle. And it's like, all right, everyone. Let's really kind of think forward. Instead of just yeah. saying, how can things be faster? Let's actually say, like, let's actually step back, mm -hmm. look at the biggest problems that need to be addressed, the biggest things that can change from web two to three, the areas that we can capitalize on, the, on this stuff, and really put in the effort to, to change that and care about it. And like Craig said, you know, really pay attention to the communities too. I mean, they are an essential part of this. And the more you put in and you and you really show that you care, the more that you're going to get out. And that stuff is going to be recognized. And it is recognized when it comes to the crypto space. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Make, make sure if you're doing anything, make it worthwhile. Make it not just an incremental betterment, but uh, make it, you know, reinvent the wheel. Why not? Uh, make something crazy. Uh, Craig, we really appreciate your time. Uh, this flew by and we genuinely hope we could have you back on again, whether you just want to talk uh, more about what you guys are building, any upcoming updates or, you know, anything else that's been interesting that you've been studying these days. Um, we would we would genuinely love to have you back on and thank you for your time. Absolute pleasure, gentlemen. Uh, like I said, keychain.org is where the open source uh, protocol is being hosted. Specification, white paper coming soon. Uh, SelfID.com is the company website. We can sign up as a user or a potential integrator. So uh, sign up there. We'll get a, a nice a waiting list going. Uh, as we unveil ourselves over the course of this year, uh, you will see step-by-step -step progress on the, uh, the self-sovereignty award that we all give to every citizen of the world. Wonderful. Uh, we'll be here reporting on it. And uh, until next time, Craig, take care. Thank you very much.